of the world. It's a massive question, isn't it? Um, there's a big assumption built into the question. Do you notice the assumption? That it's a messed up world that needs to be fixed. Now, a few months ago, we actually invited our members to ask friends, colleagues, uh, and also through social media, we asked the question. We got loads of different responses of, from people out there uh, to, to that question, how would you fix the world? It's interesting that um, only one person re responded in this way. There's nothing much wrong with the world. It's fine as it is. Uh, we logged over 360 responses before we stopped uh, counting, but only one thought that. Most people recognize that actually, yes, the world is broken, that it, it does need fixing. But of course, as you saw even just in that videotape, there's a wide variety of responses of how do you fix this world? And what we've done is we tried to group together the top four responses to come up with a, a little series over the coming weeks. And what was fascinating was that the, really, when you put it together, the number one response basically boiled down to the answer that we need to fix people. Lots of people said, well, at the heart of the world's problems was selfishness. Uh, the cult of the individual. If only we could get rid of the me, me, me culture. Uh, someone even scribbled it on the poster outside. Some put it more positively. They, they said it like, like the lady at the end of that video. If only we could just be a bit more kinder, a bit more tolerant. If only we could learn to listen to each other and respect each other more. Well, all those answers, I think, boil down to this idea that we just need to fix people. And as I hear that response, it does make me want to ask the question. When you say we need to fix people, do you think it's just other people that need to be fixed? Or do you see yourself as part of the problem that you need to be fixed? Are you basically saying, yeah, we're all messed up, or are you saying, actually, no, if I'm pretty okay. It's just the rest of the humanity that's the problem. There's a famous story that um, I tried to fact check. I couldn't really find out whether it really happened or not. But uh, in the Times newspaper, there was a question, what's wrong with the world? To which uh, a famous uh, 20th century author um, responded with a very short letter that was published in the paper. And it was this, dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Well, that's a humble response, isn't it? to recognize that he's part of the problem. And I wonder if the people who thought that we need to fix people recognize that actually there's this selfishness in, in them. Now over the next four Sundays, we're going to examine what the Bible has to say to these different responses. I'm very aware of the complexities of the problems in the world. And here's full disclosure, uh, Paul Rees doesn't have the answer. Uh, if you came today thinking, there's a man there in that church, he knows the answer. Well, I, let, me, let me disavow you of that. Uh, do you know what? This church doesn't have the answer. We think the answer's in the Bible. And that's why we're going to look to see what the Bible has to say. I think the Bible has some significant things to say. Because actually, when it boils down to it, one of the major themes in the Bible is exactly this. Why... This world which God created as a perfect world, in the first few pages you discover how it, how it got broken, how it got messed up, 
And then there's an unfolding story of what God is doing in the world to fix this problem. And if you had the opportunity to walk through the Bible exhibition over this past week, uh, you will have heard a summary of the content of the Bible in about 15 minutes. Quite an extraordinary thing to attempt. But you'll have seen that it's about an unfolding message of God's plan to fix a broken world, and it all centers on Jesus Christ. We've seen that most people in, the, in Edinburgh kind of recognize that it is a broken world, that it does need fixing, and it's clear to many people that the problem is, relates to us as human beings. Well, Jesus agreed with that. But his analysis of the scale of the problem will really push us. It's quite controversial. And so if you don't have a Bible with you, um, we have church Bibles. Please put your hand up and someone will bring you a Bible. And can I invite you to turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 7. So please, if you don't, if you don't have a Bible, put your hand up. They'll just bring it to you. Keep your hand up and the, the guys or stewards will come down and bring you one. And if you turn to page 1010 in the church Bibles, 1010... And we'll come to Mark's gospel. This is one of the eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. And in many ways, this is a chapter that goes to the heart of the debate of what's wrong with the world. And it comes in a rather unusual context. So let me just read the first 23 verses from Mark's gospel, chapter 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. 
After he'd left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of their body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Well, keep, keep that open in front of you. Then, as now, there are lots of um, solutions suggested to the problems of the world. You know, better education, better government, more culture and arts, more technology, less technology is a growing cry. Uh, others would say we need more religion. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in the time of Jesus would have argued for more religion. If only people kept their religious rules, the world would be a better place. And that's why they were so unhappy with Jesus, because Jesus just seemed to be undermining what they were teaching. And so in chapter 7, we see another attempt of them having a verbal attack on Jesus as they criticized the way his disciples were behaving. Uh, they, the disciples were clearly not obeying their strict rules about hand-washing. Now, this concern about hand-washing is not hygiene. It's not like your mother, uh, a mother begging her children, go and wash your hands before food. It's not that. It's a religious concern, a ceremonial and ritual concern about why they weren't washing their hands because those who weren't washing their hands after they'd been out and could have touched um, unclean things, they would be defiled before God. They'd be unclean before God. They wouldn't be acceptable by God. And they'd come up with a whole series of rules and traditions about washing of hands that would deal with that. Now, we don't have time to kind of go into the depth of this passage. But did you notice Jesus goes for the juggler in verse 6? You hypocrites. They were more concerned about their own traditions than what God had commanded them in their scriptures. They were obsessing about whether people were kind of obeying all the rules about hand washing while at the same time promoting traditions that enabled people to kind of break one of the Ten Commandments, one of the big ones from God. Honor your father and mother. Religious hypocrites is what Jesus calls them. And you can see why the tension builds in the account leading to Jesus being crucified. But then Jesus teaches what actually makes us unclean before God in, verses, in verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone. This is really important. You've got to listen to what Jesus says. Understand this, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. It's quite a simple but a profound thing that Jesus is saying here. 
Nothing outside of us pollutes or corrupts us who we are. It's what comes from within us that pollutes us and corrupts us and defiles us. The problem's not external, it's internal, Jesus says. Now, it seems quite straightforward, but the disciples didn't get it. And so when the crowds go and then they get into the house, they come up to Jesus and they, they ask him about it and he says, are you, are you dull? And the answer was, yes. They were dull. And before we write them off and say, well, you know, first century, of course, ignorant, no. Actually, what Jesus says here is something that we don't get today. What percentage of the population would say that human beings are basically good? Well, why don't you turn to the person next to you and ask them? What percentage would they say? Interaction. You want to put a percentage on it? All right, okay. Bit of participation now. Don't worry, it'll soon be over. Uh, if you think that 10% of the population would say that we're basically good, put your hand up. 20%. 30%. You have to put your hand up at some point. 40%. 50%. Sixty percent, seventy percent, eighty percent, ninety percent, hundred percent. Well, there we are. It, 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 it shaded around the sort of sixty to ninety. It seems to me. I don't have the figures for Scotland, <laughs> but I did come across a study that took place in America in 2014. And I'm guessing that Americans aren't that different to us, really. Six... <laughs> on this. And we have some American friends here, so please don't. We love Americans. But 67% of Americans believed that people by nature are good. 67% of Americans believed that, that people by nature are basically good. And interesting, when they, did a, when they looked at who were attenders of the mainline denominational churches in America, that figure rose to 76%. So actually, the, the population were more skeptical than the attenders who went to one of the mainline denominational churches. 76%. Three quarters reckoned that basically human beings are Good. Now that's fascinating, that three quarters of those attending these churches are basically disagreeing with Jesus, aren't they? The, the one who founded the church. Take another look at what Jesus says in, in verses 20 to 23, and read it again, and, and if we were to ask Jesus how many people are basically good, what do you think he would say from these verses? What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, 
lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So how many people would Jesus say were basically good? No one. The human heart is the source of evil in the world. Isn't that what Jesus says there? Now Jesus does acknowledge that uh, elsewhere that we're all capable of doing good and positive things. But at the same time, when people steal or kill or commit adultery or lie or slander, do you know what? That's not something that's unusual for us. It's not something that's out of character for us as human beings. Now, actually, all those sinful actions are in seed form in all of our hearts. And so in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus as he's encouraging his disciples to pray to God as their heavenly father, he says this extraordinary thing. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So Jesus fully recognizes we're capable of doing really good and wonderful and positive things as human beings. So, you know, parents, by and large, tend to teach their children well. It's not always the case, sadly. And abuse does happen. But by and large, the instinct of a parent is to be loving and kind to their child. But this acknowledgement, even though that we can do good things, this, this very casual way along the way, Jesus says, even though you're evil, this, this is how Jesus sees our predicament, sees our problem, that each of us has evil hearts out of which come all these different sins. Now this is a very significant point of difference, isn't it, with how many people would like to think today. 67%. General population in America. Um, there's been a significant academic push to, to bolster people's self esteem and, and tell people you are basically good. And, you know, if, if, if bad things happen, it's, it's other people's fault. Other things have happened to you. And you should just follow your heart. This is, this is the prevailing sort of Hollywood culture. Abraham Maslow, an American psychologist, famous for coming up with the hierarchy of human needs, once wrote this, the fact is that people are good. Give people affection and security, and they will give affection and be secure in their feelings and their behavior. After the ugly events of, uh, of the, 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 the clash that took place in Charlottesville in America recently, Barack Obama tweeted this, uh, no one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. Now, I love how positive that is, and I think it's a very well-meaning sentiment. But is it true? If you want affirmation, hang out with Maslow, you know, hang out with this sentiment. But is it true? Is it possible to raise a child in such a way, in such a perfect, loving, good environment, if you create the perfect conditions, you're going to turn a perfect human being out of that? Is that really the case? Now, we're not the first people to wrestle with these questions. Uh, following the Enlightenment, uh, where reason was given the primary source of authority and legitimacy, and there was a growing belief that human beings can basically get better and better 
this idea of human perfectibility arose. This idea that through our reason, through scientific advance, through education, we can just create a better and better society. We can keep becoming better, better people. An example of that would have been a book published in 1857 entitled The Coral Islands. It was written by Robert Ballantyne, who was born here in Edinburgh. And it's a story of, of three boys who were marooned on a South Pacific island and recounts their, their adventures as they meet and civilize the locals, making everything better and better because of uh, being raised in the empire and all that. He wrote the, the book in, in Burnt Island in Fife, having never visited Coral Island in his life, interestingly. But this book, however, was the inspiration for a very different account of a shipwrecked survivor. It was written by William Golding in 1954, you know, just within 100 years. It's very self-consciously sort of being shaped by the Coral Island. But instead of locating the evil as outside the children that they could civilize, it's locating the evil inside the boys. Now, why this change? you know, over this 100-year period from Coral Island to Lord of the Flies. What happened in those 100 years? Well, a basic education, you know what happened. In 1911, 1914 to 1918, we had the Great War, the war to end all wars. Uh, they saw the horrors of, of trench warfare, a mechanized killing with bombs, poison gas, and bullets. Nine million soldiers died. They reckon seven million civilians died in the first war. The, the great war that would end all war, but guess what? No, it wasn't. There was the second world war. The deadliest conflict of all in human history. Estimated range of between 50 and 85 million fatalities. Alongside the, the, the battles, there were massacres, the genocidal holocaust, the use of nuclear weapons for the first time. Educated, sophisticated, technological, art-loving Europeans gave themselves to slaughter on an absolute industrial scale. And suddenly, it looked very hard to maintain that human nature is basically good and continuing to get better. And since then, well, we've had genocides in Cambodia, Rwanda, bitter conflicts all around the world, war crimes in Yugoslavia, in recent weeks, we've been hearing about the problem of modern-day slavery, human trafficking, sexual exploitation, uh, gangs of people grooming and abusing girls. And this is happening in 21st century Britain. So I would say that people who are basically believe, uh, believe that we're basically good are actually doing so because they're choosing to believe that despite the evidence. If people are basically good, why is it that every nation has so many laws to regulate behavior? If we're basically good, why is it you have so many keys in your pocket or in your bag right now? Don't you trust people? Why have we got to remember all these passwords? I can never remember those passwords. We've got to remember all these passwords. Why do we have to remember all these passwords? The most ready evidence that we're not basically good comes from a very simple experience. It's called parenting. Why is it as parents... We spend so much time teaching our children to be thankful. Say thank you. Why do we have to teach them to be thoughtful? That other people's needs matter. 
We spend a lot of time doing that as parents, don't we? Why is it we never have to teach them to, um, to be selfish and self-seeking? Have you ever had to teach a child to do that? No, it's like a duck to water. I think it's very insightful that, that, that the biggest number of people who responded to our survey said that the problem was fixing people. I think that's right. But too often we basically think it's other people that are the problem. Every generation, I think, tries to make the world better than they found it. Every politician comes along and promises that they will succeed where others fail. And basically, the problem is often pointed out to be those other people are the problem. The far left blame the rich, the bourgeoisie, the fat cats, the CEOs. The far right blame the immigrants, the illegals, the unions. Conservatives blame labor, labor blame the conservatives. And every movement fastens on to other people as being the problem. And they are the solution. But listen to Jesus. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Now in biblical thought, it's not the kind of the, the muscle that's pumping blood around your body. It just means the real you, the, the person you are on the inside. That's what it means by the heart. Here's our problem. In our inner being, we find it innately so simple to be cruel and selfish and commit all sorts of sins. Why is that? Because the Bible says we are sinners. We have evil in the center of our being. This world is messed up because we have evil hearts. For Jesus says it is from within, out of the person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, or folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now there's lots of things that we can do to make society of sinners less harmful and less toxic. There's ways that we seek to regulate behavior and, and make society work. Hence all the keys and all the passwords and the police and the law courts and all the other things that we have. And you know, there's lots of ways that we can seek to advance good and human flourishing in the world. People still do have a God-given desire to do good and make a positive contribution. And so, you know, it's right and good that we teach and educate. It's right that we seek to kind of improve the conditions of people and, and, and eradicate poverty and, and seek justice and, and seek to help people struggling with debt to improve the environment, to, to do less damage to the planet, to seek to tackle all sorts of social ills and, 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 and promote justice and work against racism and, and, and promote the dignity and the value of every human being and... and, and these are good things that we should be engaged with, but at the end of the day, they will not address the fundamental problem. That is, that our hearts are biased towards evil. There is a self-destructive power at work in us where we can so easily end up hurting the people that we love the most. Spiteful words come out of our cells and out of our mouths. Selfish behavior, anger can rise up and rage against people who don't deserve it. And it comes from here, deep inside of us. And do you know what? Our greatest problem 
is that God is opposed to that evil. God hates that evil. He's angered by our lust, by our adultery, by our stealing, our murder, our pride, our thanklessness. And Jesus is clear in this chapter that religion will not solve the problem. Ritual hand-washing cannot deal with the problem. Religious ceremonies, getting baptized, going to church, trying to do good deeds will not fix this problem. We need forgiveness for our sins. And we need spiritual heart cleansing. We need a spiritual heart transplant. We need a brand new inside of us to be freed from this corrosive me, me, me selfishness that poisons our relationships with each other and ultimately with God. And that's why Jesus came to be our savior. Two incidents found in Mark's gospel. We don't have a lot of time today, but I'll just give you two little incidents. The first incident is a paralyzed man who was brought to Jesus by some friends so that he would heal him. It's a great story. They rip up a roof. They drop this guy right in front of Jesus because there's so many crowds around him. And Jesus looks at this paralyzed man and the words that come out of his mouth are quite extraordinary. He says to him, your sins are forgiven. That's the first thing he says. And it causes pandemonium. You'll have to, you can read it in Mark's Gospel chapter 2. He, you know, this man has got lots of needs. And, and to most people, it's obvious what his problem is. It's his paralysis, Jesus. But Jesus focuses on the most important issue, the biggest issue. Son, your sins are forgiven. Second incident. Two of the disciples make a pitch to get the best job in the kingdom of God. And the other disciples hear about this and get really upset because they want the top jobs. Now one of the, things I, one of the reasons I believe the Bible is it, it just presents people warts and all, the truth. This is the disciples writing their account of the life of Jesus and they're, they're unashamed of writing out what a bunch of losers they were, right? Jesus just told them he was going to go and die on a cross and they're sort of fighting for the top jobs. Well, you find that in Mark chapter 10. Great to read that. But let me tell you what Jesus says to them. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And then this stunning statement. For even the Son of Man, referring to himself, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to be our Savior. He came to bring forgiveness of our sins. He came to bring freedom. He's the ransom for many. He came to give his life. He chose to be a substitute to die in the place of sinners, to sacrifice himself, to make it possible that all the crud and evil and sin in our hearts can actually be forgiven. And he came to be the ransom that would free people who are enslaved to their selfishness and their sin 
to be freed to a new life of living for Jesus and his kingdom. He died on a cross. He rose again. And his resurrection points us to the fact that there's a brand new humanity on the way. A new heavens and a new earth. This messed up world is going to have a day of accounting, a day of judgment. And then beyond that, those who are in his kingdom will be uh, in changed, renewed, transformed uh, bodies that will never want to sin. So when you come to church today, I hope you don't go away today thinking, oh, those Christians think that they, they, they are the answer and that they're perfect. That's not what we're saying. Uh, spend time with any of us, you'll see that we have continuing hearts that say and sin and do things that we regret. But what we have discovered in coming to Jesus is there's forgiveness for our sins. What we've discovered as we, as we turn from our sin and trust Jesus, he is beginning a process of freeing people who are enslaved to their selfishness and their sin. And through his resurrection life, there is a new power, there's a new dynamic that turns violent people into loving people, that turns proud people into humble people, that turns selfish people into givers, that turns blasphemers into God worshipers, that turns grumblers into people who are filled with gratitude, that turns self-absorbed people into caring people, that turns harsh people into kind people. And if you realize this morning, like G.K. Chesterton, that you're part of a problem, then I want to invite you to respond to what Jesus has done for you today. Because you can say to Jesus, to, to God today, sorry, I know I need forgiveness. Thank you that Jesus came to be the ransom to forgive me and free me. And please forgive me and change me to live for you. I'm going to put a prayer up there right now. Maybe there's people here today and you know, you know that you, uh, there's good impulses in you but you keep being thwarted. There's this stuff that comes out of you and you know you can't fix yourself. I want to invite you to come to Jesus today. So I'm going to say this prayer and if you want to respond to Jesus, you can echo this prayer in your own hearts and minds and begin the long road to freedom that we as Christians are on. Let's pray. Dear God, I'm sorry for the evil that I see in my words, thoughts, and life. I need your forgiveness. Thank you that Jesus came to save sinners like me. Please forgive me and come into my life to change me. To become more like Jesus. Amen.